From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. The question has come up, should the Seattle School District get rid of its gifted programs? And Seattle's not the only district considering this. Many districts have found that when they look at the the demographics, the racial makeup, you have only a very small percentage of students in gifted programs who identify as black, which is considered unfair. So the question is what to do about it. We've contacted Dr. Pedro Noguera. He teaches education at UCLA. He's a sociologist. He understands the way schools are influenced by social and economic conditions. And so I just want to ask you, do you think that this idea of gifted programs for highly capable students are just a bad idea? I think I think it's great that the uh, the, the district is looking at this issue um, because we know there's uh, deep inequity um, in the way we identify kids and support kids. It tends to be that privilege is what's driving our perception of of giftedness. Right? So if you look at which kids are, are identified, you're most likely to see they're affluent kids, white kids, Asian kids, less likely to see black, Latino or even Pacific Islander or Native American kids. And and that's because um, it's the investments parents are making in their kids when they're small, um, in high-quality preschool. Some parents will even have tutors or they'll have music lessons for kids, even in, you know, during infancy. And, you know, you don't want to stop parents from making those kinds of investments in their kids. But we tend to confuse privilege with giftedness. And the reason why we know that is many of the kids who are identified as gifted when they're young are pretty ordinary as they get older. Um, they, they're not, you know, achieving great things. And it's not to say that they, you know, that, that, that there aren't lots of kids out there with talent who need to be challenged and stimulated. They, they, there are. But those kids live in poor communities as well. They live in the housing projects and, and trailer parks and even in the homeless shelters. And so what we have to be careful about is that we don't have systems that just continue to reward privilege. That said, I think it's a mistake to send a signal that we want to get rid of giftedness uh, or gifted programs um, because many parents see that as evidence that, um, that what kids won't be challenged, that there'll be a lack of rigor in schools. And so what I would say to the, the district is expand gifted, um, to, to, uh, make it so that more kids have access. More kids are getting access to a stimulating curriculum where they will be challenged and where their talents will be uh, nurtured and developed. Um, and, and that means we have to make sure that, that when we say we're going to expand it, that it's that we genuinely are expanding those kinds of opportunities for kids. I believe if a child is ready to read Moby Dick in the second grade, let them read Moby Dick. Yeah. Don't hold them back because of some grade level expectations. Um, but I, I think that right now um, we tend to, to eat both Treat giftedness um, uh, as as though it's a, a, a scarce commodity, when in fact there are lots of kids out there who, with the right supports, could perform at higher levels. Um, and then we also tend to, as I said, confuse uh, privilege with giftedness. Yeah, I know there are there are various academic categories. I mean, to me, gifted is is Sheldon Cooper. You know, that's somebody who goes to college at the age of twelve or something. Um, there are others who, as you say, are, are smart because their parents teach them at home. They take them on educational vacations, which are not available to, uh, to poor families. Uh, I, I would agree. I think it's a mistake to, to get rid of challenging uh, educational programs just because some kids are not prepared for it. The key is to find out why they're unprepared. And I, I thought that's what we had. Um, 
uh, Head Start for and mandatory preschool and stuff like that? Isn't any of that stuff working to at least help close that gap? Well, you know, it, it has mixed results. I mean, clearly getting kids into high-quality preschool is a very, very important step because the learning that happens during infancy sets the stage for learning throughout your life. Um, but, but here's what we know. The Head Start programs that serve poor kids are nothing like the high-quality Montessori or Waldorf schools that wealthy parents put their kids in. Those kids are getting their play. They're, they're, they're learning through play. They're, they're yeah. getting stimulated in ways that a lot of times poor kids are not. So we have to make sure that when we, even when we expand access to educational opportunities, we don't compromise the quality of the learning experience for children. Well, why don't we subsidize kids to go to the Montessori schools? <laughs> I don't get it. We've been debating this for, what, 40 years now? And, and we know what the expense is on the back end. It seems to me, I thought the, uh, the return was like four to one if you do it on the front end. And, and here's you know, the, um, the sad thing about Montessori. When Maria Montessori, uh, who was a physician, started um, her work in early childhood education, she started it with the poorest children mm-hmm. in places like Milan and Rome. It was not for the affluent. But as those programs were brought to the United States, they became almost exclusively available to affluent children. And that, I think, says more about us and the kind of country we are, that we don't know how or we don't have, haven't demonstrated the will to make sure that educational opportunities are available to all children, regardless of their background. Everybody says they're for that, though, don't they? I mean, who, who stands up and says, I want to make sure the poor children fail? Nobody says that. So what's been, who, who's been the holdup? Who's the villain here? Is there a villain here? So I would, you're right about that. There's no one, and, and that's why I think um, no one may say they don't want poor kids to get a good education. But what we see is there's not a whole lot of outrage when they don't get a good education. That is, we know there are many schools out there that are not meeting the needs of kids. We know that we're not compensating teachers adequately, so we're not attracting some of our best students into the profession. We're not doing what it would take. If you, if you look at the international comparisons of education, the PISA results that just came out this week, we're lagging behind several other countries. And in the countries that outperform us, teaching is a highly regarded profession. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you get the best college students going into the profession. Right now, across the country, we have a teaching shortage because in many uh, cities, and Seattle's one of them, uh, teach can barely support themselves. So we, there's a lot. We, if we are really, if we really believe that education is the key to a more equitable and just society, and that's certainly something I believe, then we've got to do more to make sure that we are investing in education than we do right now. Where do you stand on the research showing that the neighborhood itself can actually make a smart kid not smart because of the constant tension caused by violence and broken families and things like that? Well, you know, that's a that's a, a, an important issue, right? That is that we know that children don't spend all their life in school. They're, they're in homes, they're in communities, and many of the, our communities, because of the way poverty is, is structured in our society, many of our communities where there's concentrated poverty, uh, we have children who experience trauma uh, from violence and from abuse and neglect, and that impacts their development and their, um, and their you know, even their growth educationally. Um, and so I would say that it, it, if we we're doing this right. We wouldn't simply focus on education to solve all our social problems. We would make sure that there were effective anti-poverty programs. There were there was a social safety net. There was good health care available to everyone and good housing. Um, again, you know, it's, that sounds far-fetched, but all you have to do is look at Canada. They do a much better job than we do on all of those issues. 
And, um, you know, we, we rarely ask the question. I'll give you just one example. If you go to Vancouver, how many ghettos will you find? You don't find ghettos in, in Vancouver or in most Canadian cities. But in every American city, you have one, big or small. And that says much more about our history as a society and our inability to, to, to address these tough issues related to race and inequality than it does about uh, the, just the very nature of poverty itself. Okay, what's tell me the secret. <laughs> You're the professor. Are Canadians just genetically better adjusted than we are, or they must be doing something that we're not? Well, I would say there's a recognition in Canada um, that you have to have a social safety net, right? That it, you can't, if you relegate poor people to the worst schools and don't provide their children with um, uh, health care and, and preschool, then you create a society like ours. Um, and, and Canada is a society now that has more better mobility rates um, um, for its citizens than we do. You know, we like to take pride in our American dream, but um, the fact is that the American dream is in, is in trouble. It's under attack. And right now, because of the cost of college, large numbers of young people don't believe they can go to college because mm-hmm. it's not affordable. Uh, so there's a lot we haven't done in recent years that has made inequality grow, get much worse in Seattle in many ways, epitomizes it. Because Seattle was a blue-collar town that's now become a very wealthy city right. where, um, with you know, an incredibly large homeless population. Yeah. Uh, now, you're, st- you're getting close to Andrew Yang territory here because Andrew Yang says the way to solve this, <laughs> give people money. And, I, and he's not the only one. I've heard this for years. I actually had a pastor who once said, look, you want to do something for a poor person? Find out where he lives and stuff $20 bills in his mailbox. I mean, what poor people need is the money to make them at least not make them rich, but make them less poor. And I think we have we have a problem with just free lunch. We don't want to give people a free lunch. We want to give them money unless they work for it. Right. No, I think that's a, a huge problem. And, and, you know, and if people object to just giving people money, then let's make sure they can, then let's give them the, the social wage. Let's make sure that everybody has health care. Let's make sure that everybody has right to an education. Um, that would go a long way at reducing some of our inequality in, in, in this country. Um, so th- there's a lot we could do, but I, I think it- Yang is right in a lot of ways, you know, that, um, I, I see these big foundations that are constantly looking for ways to in- invest small amounts of money and expect big impact from it. Well, why should we think that a few dollars on an after school program is going to end poverty in, 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 um, a place like South Seattle, you need to do much more than that. And, and the wealth is there. We have the wealth. You have some of the biggest con- uh, foundations in the world right there in Seattle. Yep. There's a lot more we could do to tackle this problem. But your bottom line on the gifted programs is uh, don't throw them out, but just try to create a society where more people can see their gifts recognized. Yeah, my, my, my concern is if you say you're going to get rid of gifted programs, it sends the wrong message. It sends the message that we're going you know, to be mediocre. And what we want to no, that's the opposite. We want to say all kids are going to get challenged. We want to expand access to a challenging curriculum. We want to make sure that we're meeting the needs of individual students and that, that all kids are being encouraged to develop and grow. Um, and so we want to make sure that, that that's happening for a greater number of kids, not, not fewer. Dr. Pedro Noguera, professor of education, UCLA. Dr. Noguera, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, 
I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.